We've got two weeks left of the current series that we've been in. We've been talking about relationship status. And I've spent the whole time on this topic of what does it truly mean to be saved and a follower of God. And so Wednesday night, just giving another plug, I know Carrie gave a plug. Wednesday night has been a great time for us as a, as a body of believers to come together and have some discussion about some pretty, uh, what, what you would think would be surface, surface topics about Christianity, but we've really been able to dig deeper and be able to, to root ourselves in God's word. And that was the goal and the plan. So even if you haven't come out yet, I want to encourage you, come on out this Wednesday. We're going to continue that Bible study on Follow Me. It's a great study. Uh, we watch a video. It's about a 25-minute video. We do some discussion, and that's it. It's as simple as that. And there are snacks and drinks there. I, I know for sure. I'm not misspeaking again. So all I do is I promise you food and drinks and help you show up. But no, 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 it, it, there are snacks, there are drinks. It's a great casual Bible study. So if you, you're uncomfortable kind of sitting in maybe a more formal setting, or maybe you say, oh, I really would like to get deeper in God's word, but I don't know how, here's the next step for you. Wednesday night would be a great tool for you to be a part of that. Uh, it's no pressure. I have, I have wrote zero red X's. Nobody's got, a, nobody's got an answer wrong yet. Nobody's been corrected. It's a time of discussion for us all to dig deeper into our own faith. And so I hope you'll come. But today we're talking about probably one of the coolest things about salvation to me. And probably to me, the reason that salvation feels so much more real and I, I, I say feels. The reason I know for a fact in my life that salvation has taken root is the topic that we're going to talk about today. The reason I know that Christ has changed me is what we're going to talk about today. So last week, if you remember, we talked about propitiation and that Christ was the atonement for our sins and he paid the price. Today, I want to spend a few minutes talking about regeneration. So regeneration, and then next week, we're going to spend some time talking about what we do from here. So now that we're believers, now that we're followers, what does that mean for us? Where do we go from here? And that title is going to be sanctification. So today we talk about regeneration. Next week will be sanctification. But here's our question today. Out of Titus chapter 3, here's the question. Is there anything about me, my past, or my actions, I want you to catch this phrase, that makes salvation there it went. Goodbye. And the joy of salvation impossible. I want you to catch that phrase. The joy of salvation. If you are a believer in Christ, there should be an unexplainable joy in your life. And here's why that joy is unexplainable. Regardless of your situation, regardless of your failures, regardless of your faults, regardless of the destitute state that you find yourself in, regardless of your financial means, regardless of your family situation, you can have joy because of Christ. Now, according to the world, that makes no sense. In fact, that makes you crazy is what that makes you. But as Christians, we have been given the joy of salvation. So I want to challenge you as we start talking this morning. If you look at your life and you say, I don't know that I could describe my life as being joyful. I want to challenge you to examine and think, what am I leaning on? Is it Christ or is it something else? So we're going to be in Titus chapter 3, and we're going to read just a few verses there. Um, verse 1 through 8 is actually where we're going to be. So Titus 3, 1 through 8 is up on the screen. Uh, there's also a Bible in the back of the pew in front of you. I'd like for you to read with me. Here's what the Bible says in verse number 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Time out. How many of you have met people like this in the real world? 
All right, and, and let me give you some context. You're walking through Costco, walking through Walmart, and everybody is just so kind and, oh, would you like to go first in front of me in line? Would you like this parking spot? Let me get out of your way so you can park closer to the door. Let me hold this door for you. That, that was your experience this week. Not so much, right? And less and less and less. And in fact, I hear so many people say, I miss the good old days when people really loved each other and people really cared about each other. Let me tell you something about the good old days. The good old days is when people knew the Lord, when they knew Christ and he made a difference in their lives. So here's what he says. He's telling Paul, remind the believers these things. Let's go on to verse number three. It says, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another, but when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of the deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. I want you to catch something. That phrase he said, he poured out on us freely through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Remember last week we talked about how propitiation is another word for atonement. And atonement was to take the blood of the lamb and to pour it on the sins of the man. Right? Does that make sense? Are you following with me? Here's what he says. Jesus was poured out, his life, who he was, everything he was on earth was poured out to pay for your sins. And because he was poured out on our sins, we've been given regeneration. We've been given renewal. And it wasn't because of us. Have you, have you caught that there seems to be a common thread through all of these sermons, through all of these lessons, and it has been this. Salvation has nothing to do with you and everything to do with Christ. That's the truth of the matter. That's what it boils down to, is it's not we're good enough. Let me tell you something. If you're searching for sin, look here, because you'll find it. If we're hunting for sin, you can find it in me. I guarantee it. I promise you can. Today, tomorrow, the next day, you will find sin if you watch me close enough. I'm human, and I'm flawed, and I'm messed up. And I would, I, would, I would guarantee the same thing's true for you. If I'm searching for sin, I can find it in you. But here is the grace of God. We don't have to look for each other's faults because they've been covered by the blood of Jesus, and we have been made new. That's what we're talking about this morning. So let's jump down further. He's here in verse number, um, verse number uh, 6. Sorry, verse 7 is where we are. He says, So that being justified by his grace we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently, so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. God, I just want to thank you so much for changing us. God, we were foolish, and we were hateful, and we were hated, but God, you changed us, and you renewed us. God, I pray that as we look at this passage this morning, that, Lord, it would be a source of hope, a source of encouragement, Lord, and a so source of excitement for us as a body of believers, knowing that you are in control, and you've paid the price, and you have changed us. We thank you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you've been coming here long, you know for a fact I'm just so good at bringing up like bright and cheery and happy and flowery and, and sugar-coated subjects to start the sermon. So I thought I would start with one of those today. Prison recidivism rates, right? So that's a really 
fun and exciting topic. Something you wake up in the morning and say, man, what's going to make me smile? Let's think about how many people go back to prison who are already in prison in the first place. Right? Not, so, not so cheery, right? Well, you want to talk about a hope, hopeless statistic. I'm going to read you the recidivism rates in the United States for men and women that were in prison for any amount of time. So you're talking about the lowest offender to the greatest offender in our country, and this is in 2005. So this is worse now. That's what I want you to understand. The last time they did this study, and this is directly from the Department of Justice. This is their study. This is their statistic. Of all of the people who were in prison and released, within three years, 67.8% were back in prison. You say, well, that's because criminals are criminals. Let me tell you something. We're all criminals. Say, oh, now, now you're stepping on my toes, Pastor John. I'm not a criminal. I didn't do anything wicked or sinful. You did enough to put Jesus on the cross, didn't you? We all did, right? And, and you say, well, it's not as bad as that. Let me tell you something. Sin is sin is sin is sin is sin. Period. Sin is sin. And so here we see we've got 67%. And it's easy for us to say, well, you know what? People that are mean and wicked, they just want to live that lifestyle. And they're just going to continue in it. And you know what that allows us to do is to, as a church, brush that under the rug and move along and say, well, we're going to reach the ones God brings us. Really good. Uh, you know, good thought. Nice logic there. But what Christ says is go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in. So I'm trying to find our American theology in what Christ said, right? I'm trying to find the doctrine of prisoners are prisoners and leave them alone, but I don't see it. So, so that's three years. It gets worse. The same group of people after five years, 76.6 have returned to prison. This is in 2005. I'm, let me remind you, it's worse now. Here's the one that really hit me. Within one year. Because you think, well, you know, after three years, you know, they kind of loosened up and maybe they fell back into the same group of friends and eventually it just happened again. But this is what he says. After, after one year, the recidivism rate for America is 56.7%. More than half that are released. Now, I, I want you to think about this. Never does a prisoner walk out of the jail and say, can't wait to get back here. Right? You see it. You see it all the time. I've had family members. I've had friends. I've had teenagers. And they're counting down the moments until they're free. And so it's not that they don't want to do better. Every single prisoner I've ever met and had a conversation with had the intention to do better. In fact, they involved themselves in programs that were meant to reform. Right? We have reform schools. Nowadays, they don't call them reform schools. They call them alternative schools. But let me tell you, an alternative school is a reform school. If you don't believe it, spend a couple hours there. You'll know it's a reform school. I have had students in reform schools. And they said, well, why? It doesn't seem to be working. I'm following the rules at school. But as soon as I'm given any liberty, I fall right back into what I was already doing. I had a teenager in Texas at one time. I won't tell you his name. I won't tell you what he did. But he went into uh, juvenile detention. And he was there, and I remember visiting him. I remember being stressed out just going to visit, right? Like, so you walk in, they're like, do you have anything sharp? I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm not doing anything. I'm not going to, I'm not, give me your cell phone, give me your wallet, give me your keys. And I'm like, what if he attacks me? And they're like, you know the kid, don't you? I'm like, I know, but this is pretty heavy stuff. You're scaring me. I had to go in one room. They had to check me, and they locked that door. And I had to go in the next room. They checked me, locked that door. And I started to realize, this is no joke. This is real. 
And I can remember that kid telling me, I would do anything to get out of here today. I would do anything just to be able to get out of here. And I tried to talk about the gospel with him and talk about the Lord with him. He said, listen, I've got to get focused on changing me. And I said, I'm focused on changing you. Christ is who wants to change you. He said, I can't, I can't think about all that stuff right now. I said, well, listen, I'm here anytime, but, but the only thing I can offer you is what will really change you, and that's Jesus Christ. He said, I'm too busy to talk about that. I can't do that. Um, I'll see you next time. Tell my parents I said hi, and that was the end of the conversation. He gets out. Within two months, guess where he was back? Same place. And I, I'm telling you, I saw it in his eyes. It wasn't that he wanted to go back. It was that he had no ability to change who he was. Let me tell you something. Now, all those seem really hopeless, right? Some of you may remember last year, um, Art Hallett came and he sang at the uh, Senior at Luncheon. He came and did a concert. Well, Art does a gospel program within the prisons across the country and actually internationally. I'm going to read you the recidivism rate for people who successfully go through Art's program. Now, let me tell you what Art's program is. He shares the gospel and disciples the young men and young women within the prisons. And they have a real relationship with Christ. Here's the recidivism rate. Out of 1,000 people that were released, and this was, this was old too. This is probably around the same time, 2005, 2006. Of 1,000 people released, three returned. If you don't know what that means, within one year, the recidivism rate for people that went through the program with art and found Christ in a real and genuine way was 0.3%. You say, well, good job, art. You're doing the job. Let me tell you something. It's not art. It's that art realizes that what we need is Christ. Now, gladly and by the grace of God, we are not in prison. But let me tell you something. I have been in a situation before where I said, I can't change who I am. I can remember as a teenager looking at myself in the mirror and I had just done something so dumb and so stupid and I was on my way to do the next dumb, stupid thing. And I can remember looking at myself in the mirror and thinking, I can't imagine being the kind of person I want to be. I'm too stuck being the kind of person I am. I can't change this. I can remember the hopelessness of that moment. And I can also remember two months later coming to Christ, and this was my prayer. God, I still suck, and I'm going to keep sucking, and I still am not going to get better. Excuse my language. I was a teenager. I know. Maybe that's a little vulgar. Maybe that's a little rough. But that's what I said. And I said, if I can just have a relationship with you, that's what I'm interested in. You know what happened? He poured Jesus over me. I was regenerated. You say, why, are you, why do you keep sharing this? Why do you care so deeply about this? Because I hate to see you walking through life not knowing that there's hope. I've seen enough teenagers, enough adults broken. I can see their faces as I speak to you. And they think it's because they're not good enough. Let me tell you something. Neither am I. Neither are you. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Change, the only kind of change that really works. We can't be reformed. We can't be changed on the outside. We can't conduct behavioral modification. The only change that's going to change our world and change us and change our community is Jesus Christ. So here's where we are. Titus chapter 3. I promise I will try not to cry again. I know I sound like such a fool. Cry, my, my speech when I cry sounds like a Muppet baby. I understand that. So I, I will avoid doing that again. 
But I want you to know, Christ is the only change we can have. That's the only source of regeneration. So here, I, listen, and some of you may have already looked at your, your bulletin and thought, oh my goodness, we're going to be here two, 2 o'clock today. He's got five points. We're never getting out of here. They're not long, but I want to make sure we understand them, and I want to make sure that we see this passage for what it really says. And the first thing I want us to understand is this. We were all terrible. We were all terrible. A few weeks ago when I started the sermon series, I told you about this show I had been watching. And... Um, so, so Leah was out of town, and I, I remember I told you, we, you know, typically Leah and I watch like, oh, House Hunters, and like Chip and Joanna, whatever that's, what's that called, what's the, that's, that's, or like Food Truck Race, whatever that one's called, like, like really happy, like exciting stuff, well, Leah goes out of town, and I'm like, what should I watch? Prison shows, let me watch shows about prison, these prison documentaries, I watched an entire prison documentary series, like four hours straight, not, not in one city, and let me, like, I just didn't sit in my house like, but no, I finished that show while she was gone. And one thing stuck out to me the whole time I was watching it. There was this criminal. He'd been in prison five different times for a total of over 30 years. His entire life. He's only 50-something years old. Almost his entire life he spent in prison. And here's what he said. When he got out into general population, he had been in solitary confinement. He made a sign, tied it around his neck, and he started wearing it for all the cameras to see. And what it said was, I am you. And I thought, this guy... He may be a little crazy. I watched the show. He was a little crazy, I'll say, but he was right. There is no one seated here today that has any higher standing or deserves any more than the lowliest criminal that's sitting in our prison. None. Let me extend that further. There's nobody sitting in this auditorium that has any higher standing or has earned any more than the homeless man sitting down the street. Zero of us. None of us. And if we had spent our entire lives serving God and following him, we still do not deserve more than the lowliest criminal that you've ever met. Ever met. So, well, how is that? Because we can't earn it. It's only by Christ. And here's what, here's what Paul says about it. He's telling Titus, and, and Titus is a small book, so maybe you haven't spent much time there. We know more about Timothy. We hear Timothy a lot as being the, the son in the faith to Paul. Well, I want you to understand, Titus is the same thing. He says, my son in the faith. Titus is his, his um, protege, if you will. Titus is trying to continue the ministry that Paul began. And Paul says, listen, here's where your focus needs to lie, Titus. Titus, this is what you need to be looking at. And he says, first, remember, we were all foolish. We were all disobedient. This is verse number three, if you're looking for where I'm at. <coughs> we were all deceived. We were all enslaved. Now listen to what he says. We were enslaved to lust and to pleasures. I want you to think back. Those of you that are believers, those of you that have Christ, those of you that have been regenerated, I want you to think back to the hopelessness of trying to overcome your sin by sheer effort. I tell you, I can remember it. I can remember the depression that it leads to. I can remember the frustration that it leads to. I can remember the utter worthlessness that it leads to. You know, I've heard some people say, I can't imagine what would ever drive somebody to suicide. Let me tell you something. I can imagine what would drive somebody to suicide. And here's what it is. I'm not good enough. I can't be good enough. And there's no hope that I ever will be good enough. Now, here's the thing. That's true. That's true. We aren't good enough. We can't be good enough. And on our own, we will never be good enough. But that's been true for all of us. From the beginning of mankind, from the day that Adam and Eve sinned and brought sin into the world, we have all been wicked and sinful. We've all been, as, as Paul says here, we've been enslaved 
to lusts, and we've been enslaved to pleasures. Here's what they said. Here's what he's telling. That our ruler, when we were not believers, our ruler was the desire of the moment. I want you to think about that. Our king, or the God of our lives, without Jesus Christ, is whatever it happens to be that we want most that moment. Now here's the big problem with that. When somebody interferes with what I want, and what I want is my God, I'll do anything and I'll hurt anyone to get to where I want to be. Does that make sense? Does it sound like our world today? Sounds like our country? Sounds like people we know? The only way to be changed from that is Jesus Christ. So let's look here. Um, look at Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. If you, if you don't want to turn over, that's all right. I'll read it to you. Verse number 17 through 19 says this. Brethren, join in following my example. So here's Paul again saying, follow my example. I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. I've followed Christ. And observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. So this is the first command. This is what he's saying. You believers, you Philippian church, don't walk like the world. Walk like the believers that God's placed among you. Look like each other and look like Christ as a result. That's what he says. But here's what he goes further. He says in verse number 18, For many, that's our world today, For many walk of whom I have often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction. Catch this whose God is their appetite and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. This is humanity without Christ. I'm my own king. What I can consume, what I can eat, what I can feel, what I can experience, that's what I'm interested in. Let me tell you something. Here's a spoiler alert. Here's what that leads to. Depression, frustration, guilt, hopelessness, that's where it's going. That's where it's always going to end up. No matter how many uh, dollars you have, no matter how much power you have, no matter how great your family is, no matter how much you've done that you feel like is good and you can be proud of yourself, you're always going to get to the point where you realize, if it's up to me, I'm no good. And without Christ, that hopelessness is too much to bear. So here, we were enslaved to lust and pleasures. Not only that, he says we were wasting life. Now, I, think, I want you to see this verse, uh, verse number three. At the very end, he says, spending our life in malice and envy. That word spending has the connotation that it's used up. I want you to think about this, and this is something maybe you haven't considered before. If your life is totally dedicated to what happens here on earth, it will be used up. Does that make sense? It will be spent. It is perishable. It is a consumable rather than and eternal. But if your life is spent, if your life is invested in the cause of Christ, it's not perishable. It's not consumable. It is eternal and it is long lasting and it goes beyond the day of your death. We've talked about this before just a couple weeks ago that if your life is all focused on getting the most here and having the most fun here, there's always an alarm. There's always a ticking a ticking time bomb that's waiting at the end because we all know that we're all going to die. That life is not eternal here on earth. And so if it's just about having the most fun, it's just about experiencing the most stuff, it's just about gaining the most money and having the most power and having the most influence, if it's just about those things, it still all leads to doom. If that's it, if that's the extent of life, in fact, I've, told, I've showed you before a video where Tom Brady 
So you may be a Patriots fan, you may not. I know, listen, I know our seasonal folks aren't all back yet, so a couple months from now that might elicit cheers, whereas now maybe not so much. But Tom Brady, I watched an interview with him two weeks after he won the Super Bowl. And the interviewer asked him kind of a softball question. All he said was, what's next for Tom Brady? And it hit Tom. You could see it hit him like a ton of bricks. And he kind of sat low in his seat. And you see his expression change. He said, I don't know. And here's what he said. He said, you know, a lot of people would say that I've got lots of money. I've achieved all my dreams. I've got lots of power. I've got a beautiful wife. You know, this is what life is all about. But me, I think, God, there's got to be more than this. And it occurred to me that, that we, we often think that the most depressing story is that somebody doesn't achieve what they set out to achieve. But let me tell you something. Let me submit to you that more hopeless and more depressing is when you achieve everything that you ever wanted to achieve and realize it wasn't as valuable as you always thought it was. And realize it doesn't satisfy the way that you thought it would. We all go through life as if there's some level of attainment or achievement that will bring satisfaction and change us. But here's what Jesus says. It's not about what you consume. It's not about what you do. It's not about spending your life here and it expiring when you die. It's about investing your life in the cause of Christ. Let me tell you something. I'm not a pastor for the money. I'm not a pastor because I, I, I just like to hear my own voice. Although sometimes my wife questions, do you just like to hear your own voice? I, I'm, that's not the reason. The only reason that I'm a pastor is because I believe that God called me to do it. Now you say, well, I know God's not calling me to be a pastor. I'm not calling you to be a pastor either. But what I am calling you to do is say this, God, whatever it is that you want me to do, I want to invest my life in that thing wholeheartedly. Whether that's being a, 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 a lineman for the power company, or whether that's um, owning a business, or whether that is uh, just working a job and being the best testimony that you can possibly be, or whether for some of us maybe that is God's calling us to reach an unreached people group. We all met Kathleen. Kathleen, we, I love Kathleen, I enjoyed talking to her, but what I love most about Kathleen is that she wasn't depending on some eloquent speech. Right? It wasn't that she was so polished and that she was so prepared and just so ready. What I loved about Kathleen was that she was so willing. And I asked her, I said, I said you know, they, I, was, I was teasing her a little bit. I said, Cash told me that uh, you know, you get, your, your whole island gets flooded for three months and you're stuck there. And she said, I know, I know, that's part of the call. And I, it occurred to me, you know, I was being facetious and I was trying to jab her a little bit. But it occurred to me that it didn't matter what she was going to face because she knew who asked her to do it. She was investing her life. And so here he says, your life has been wasted. It's been spent up on malice and on envy. So the, that word malice, we don't use it often, but it's the intention or desire to do evil. We spend our life, and, and maybe it doesn't look like, well, I'm just trying to hurt somebody, but maybe it looks like, well, I deserve, and in fact, the word envy goes in further to this. That word envy means that I believe I deserve what you have more than you deserve what you have. And that's where admiration and, and, and you know, jealousy becomes sinful, because it starts to say, you don't deserve the things you have, but I do. You don't deserve what you have, but I do. And that leads to hate, where it says, I will do what it takes to get what you have, regardless of how much it hurts you or those around you. That's how our world lives. 
If you don't believe it, I'll challenge you to go to Tampa the day after Thanksgiving and just stand in Walmart on Black Friday. When the doors open, just stand back and watch what happens. I can guarantee a few things. Number one, we have experience in this, I'll tell you. Um, you will see some woman tackled for a pair of pajamas. That will, that will happen. I've seen it every year for the last 10 years. You will see some group of people push onto each other so much that they all fall into a heap on top of a video game display. I've seen every year we've seen that. And you will see some, at least, at least a few people with an absolute look of terror in their eyes because they have realized that everybody around them cares more about the stuff than they do about the other people in the room. It's a, pretty, it's a pretty humbling thought. It's a pretty harrowing thought when we realize that as Americans, that as humans, we are so focused on self and what we need and what we want. And every one of those people would justify it. Maybe they would say, well, you know, I haven't been getting as many hours as I need. I, I just will never be able to afford something for my kids unless I get to this display. So here's what that, that leads to. I deserve it more than you do. Here's what the Bible says. Submit. Give up. Yield. Here, this is yours. I, and, and you know what's, when yielding's really hard? When you actually do really need it. When you actually really don't have an answer for how you're going to fix the problem that, created, that you created for yourself by sacrificing for someone else. But God has called us to love in that way. I don't need this as much as you do, and I love you enough to say you can have it instead of me. That's what it means. That's what he's saying here. And so we were all, we're, we're terrible. We had, there was nothing good about us, but here's where the hope steps in. Verse number five, I'm going to read it to you, and then we'll go on to point two. It says, he saved us. Now catch this, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Christ saved us. A, not because we deserved it. Listen, if it was dependent on us deserving it, we would all be doomed. Because at some point, we all fail. And at some point, we're all unworthy. The second thing, not because we earned it. We didn't work hard enough for it. We didn't pay back the sins that we have committed. Even if you only ever committed one sin, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And there is nothing you could do on this earth or in this life that could pay for that sin and allow you salvation. Nothing. Zero. Absolutely nothing. He goes on further. Not only because uh, he, he saved us, not because we deserved it, not because we earned it, not because we were good. And finally, only because of his kindness, his love, and his mercy. Only because of his kindness, love, and mercy. And I've said this, I know I've said this every week that we've been in this study, but I really want you to get this. In your lowest moment, this is the greatest hope you can ever receive. Because listen, we've all been in a situation where, um, you know, let's say, let's say, let's use the biblical example where, let's say you um, you have a debt to somebody, and the debtor, uh, uh, the person you owe, says, if you'll just work on paying it back over the next year, we'll consider it paid. Now, does that provide relief? If you've ever been in that situation and you can't pay now, but they give you some leeway, they give you some grace, a grace period. That, allow, that allows you some relief, but you still have to work for it, right? Here's what the Bible says. In your hardest time, in your lowest moment, at your weakest time, and your biggest failure, when you were the farthest from God that you've ever been, here's what he says. He saved us solely on his love. 
Salvation is not dependent on our behavior. Salvation is not dependent on our resume. Salvation is not dependent on our good deeds. Salvation depends alone on Jesus Christ and Him paying for our sins. And so here's where regeneration starts to come in. Here's what he says. He says that we only because of love and mercy. Now we see in number three that Christ changed us. The second part of verse five here, he says this, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. You say, well, that just seems like, you know, Paul's just trying to be poetic and he just likes using these big words and it just means that we're saved. But I think it is valuable for us to dig in here and see what he's talking about when he says the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Spirit. Those are two different things. They're two things that are happening actively in you as a believer. The first one we talked about just a moment ago when I said that the propitiation or atonement for our sins was Jesus' blood, death on the cross, and that blood that washed over us is the washing of regeneration. Now I want you to understand that that washing of regeneration makes you wholly new. It doesn't revive you. It doesn't breathe life into who you were. It doesn't make you a better version of what you once were. It takes away who you used to be and has made you completely new and in Christ. So the Bible teaches. The second part here, and so as we look here at number three, first he says by the washing of regeneration, 2 Corinthians 5.17, the Bible says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, listen to this, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. You're new. You're not the same person you were before. And this is what explains how recidivism can go from 56% in one year to 0.3%. You say, what, what do you mean it explains that? Because they're not who they were when they walked through the prison doors in the first place. And so when they walked out as a new person, they didn't do the same things they used to do. You say, well, it was, it's because they tried hard. It's because art really encouraged them. It's because they did their very best. Let me tell you something. Trying hard doesn't work. Encouragement's not going to work. I've been there. Doing your very best is still going to leave you absolutely hopeless. The only change that we can rely on is the regeneration of Jesus Christ. He died to make us new. So second thing here, he says, and the renewing of the Spirit. I think this is interesting. Uh, the renewing of the Spirit, Romans 12, verse 2 says this, and do not be conformed or don't be exactly like this world, but be transformed. Listen to this by the renewing of your mind. And here's why you want to be renewed. So that you may prove what, is the, what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So here's what he says. You are new because of the blood of Christ. Secondly, every day you are made new because of the work of the Spirit in your life. So what do you mean by that? What are you trying to say? This renewing of the Spirit, here's how Paul describes it in another passage. He says, but be renewed by the renewing of your mind. Here's all that means. And Paul says it multiple times. Paul says, I die daily. Paul says, I am crucified with Christ, yet I live. Paul over and over again said, here is the gist of it, that you have to let your will die daily so that Christ can shine forth in your life. Even though we are a new creature, that old nature tries to step in and convince you to do what you used to do. You say, okay, so that means what you're saying, Pastor John, is now that I'm saved, now I should try harder and do better. Wrong. That's not it. The same thing that saved you is the one that will renew you. 
The same thing that saved you is what you must rely on to be renewed on a daily basis. So let me, it can be as simple as this, and I don't want to be too practical. I want it to apply into your life. But it can be as simple as waking up and saying, God, today I am yours, and what you want me to do is what I want to do. What you say I am is who I am. What you call me to do is what I'm going to do. Let me tell you something. If you go into the day with that mindset, it's a lot easier to, to treat people the way we should. You go into the, into the day with that mindset, it changes the whole priority of your life. And if we can keep Christ as the number one thing, and we can keep our relationship with Christ as our, our, as our priority in life, that's what's going to change us. Because it's not going to be a, a set of rules, it's not going to be a set of, of practices or a set of disciplines that's going to change you. It's going to be your relationship with Christ. The same thing that it changed you in the first place. And so he changed us. He says here, by the, the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Spirit. But he doesn't stop there. The Bible says that he claims us. In verse number 7, we read this. He says, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That is a very powerful verse. I hope that you catch everything he just said in that one short sentence. The first thing he said this. He said that we have been made heirs. Another word for heirs is that we are his family. You say, well, what, what does that even mean? You know, we talk about a church family. We talk about, you know, our family. And, and the sad thing in our day and age, maybe your family situation hasn't been a source of joy or excitement for you. Maybe your family, you look at that and say, well, I don't want more of that. The way that my family treated me or the way that things go in my family, I'm not excited about that. But now he's not talking about a faulty, dysfunctional family that we all have because we're sinful and we're wicked and we're human. He's talking about the perfect family of God the Father. We have been adopted. We're no longer slaves, but now we've been called into the family of God. And this is what he means. And this is why he uses the word heirs. He says that everything that God has... Everything that God owns, everything that God can provide, everything that Christ paid for on the cross has been made fully ours because we are part of the family. We are heirs to everything that Christ is an heir to. We have been given righteousness that in no way did we deserve or earn. The Bible talks about he imputed his righteousness on our account. Let me tell you something. The Bible also tells us, Paul says that our righteousness is as filthy rags. It's as, the, it's as the bandages that they would wrap the lepers in. It's bloody, filthy bandages. That's what our righteousness looks like. But the Bible says that Christ imputed his righteousness on our account. You say, what does imputed mean? It's like this. So, so I, I've, I've done this a couple times. Um, let's say you've got a family member that lives you know, across the country, and they, um, they've got some money or you've got some money that you want to give them, you walk into their, bank, uh, they're into their bank and say, I've got an account number and I want to put this money on this account, such and such account. Here's the number, here's the money. Put it on there. Let me ask you something. Will the bank call the holder of that account before they put the money on? Will the bank refuse that deposit because the person didn't work for it? It will go on their account. That is imputing onto somebody's account. You didn't have to take any action. The moment you received Christ, the righteousness of Jesus Christ was put onto your account. You say, well, I don't feel changed. That doesn't change anything. It's on your account. That family member may never know that I deposited money on their account. They may never look at the statement, but does that change the fact that it was there? 
Listen, we just have to reckon. We have to realize. We have to come to the realization that righteousness is there. And we've got to lean on Christ. We've, got to, we've been called to lean on Christ. So here, he called us into his family. But not only that, not only does he claim us in his family, he says we have his hope. He says we have his hope, and that hope is as a result of eternal life. Verse 7, the end, he says, we have been made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We have the hope of Christ that this world is not everything. Because I'm going to tell you something. Every human will not turn to Christ. Every human will not be changed by Christ. But it, we're called to go and reach into our world. And, the, and Jesus said it this way. He said, because you are different, and because you love me, and the world hated me, the world will hate you. Sounds exciting, right? Like, become a Christian, follow Christ, everyone's going to hate you. Sounds like, if you, you know, if you go home and turn on um, a, a few different uh, Bible evangelists that happen to have TV programs, I have a hard time believing that might be what you'd hear. You know, we want to hear, well, become a Christian and you'll be rich. Become a Christian and you'll have prosperity. Become a Christian and you'll never have problems again, which is all well and good until the first time you face adversity again. And one of two things has to be true. Either God was a liar or I'm not a Christian. It's pretty heavy, right? That's pretty hard. That's pretty heavy stuff. So if, if I told you as a pastor that God wants to make your life on earth more comfortable, I would be a liar. And you would be depressed and you would lose hope. But here's what I do want to tell you. And this is the hope that Jesus Christ is talking about. This world is going to pass away. This world is perishable. This world will burn up and it'll be gone. But what we're working towards goes beyond that. What we're working for and investing in is far more than what we see here. It's not this building. It's not this location. It's not this town. It's not this region. We are working for the kingdom of Christ. Amen. And when we invest in him and we invest our lives in him, listen, it's not hopeless. I don't care how much money you have. I don't care how much uh, uh, enjoyment you may have in life. I don't care how much stuff you have or how good your family situation is or how big your house is or how big your car is. None of that rivals what I have in Jesus Christ. And that's the hope that we are called to lean on. That's the hope that we must focus on. And so finally, I want to say this. Because of that, because of our hope in eternity, this is what Paul is calling Titus to do. And I, I find it funny that this passage about regeneration, this is how he opens. In verse number one, I'll read this. The Bible says, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Now watch this. He jumps down to verse eight and he bookends this whole uh, this whole theology with this. Here's what he says. This is a trustworthy statement and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. Listen, this is why. These things are good and profitable for men. So you say, well, what are you saying here? Number five, Christ enlists us to draw people to him and not push them away. This is what we've been called to do. You say, well, well you know, I, I, I used to have teenagers ask me a lot. Well, if Christ has saved me and my eternity is heaven, why, why not, as soon as I prayed and accepted Christ and as, as soon as I decided sincerely that I'm going to follow Christ, why didn't he just rapture me out right then? Like I just disappear and go to heaven. Here's why. Here's why. Christ has enlisted you as a believer to draw people to himself. You say, well, that's not my personality. Are you a believer? Here's what, here's what Paul said. 
He said, followers fish. Remember that? We said that a few weeks ago. You say, oh, you know, it's, it's hard for me to talk to people. You know, it's just, it's just difficult. Let me tell you something. God put people in your path and in your circle of influence, and he put people in your family, and he put people under your friendship, and he put people under your leadership, not so that you could just get along with them peaceably and just pretend that, that, that Christ doesn't really matter. He put them there because he wants you to be an influence on their lives. That's why they're there. That's what he says here, and this is how he says it. So he says he wants you to draw people to himself, and he outlines, here's the way you can do it. Number one, be subject to rulers and authority. Does that, now, now I'm going to say two things, and I, I hope you don't get mad at me. If you do, we'll have to pray together and we'll, we'll be okay. But does this sound like go on Facebook and blast everybody that doesn't look or think or act like I do? Wait, let, let me reread it again. Let me, let me read it again and let's check. Be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient. Okay, wait, wait. Okay, be subject to rulers and authorities. Wait, but that says be subject to rulers and authorities unless you disagree with them, right? Is that what it says? Not what it says. Be subject to rulers and authorities unless they speak contrary to the Bible. Wait, you say, well, now you're now you're just meddling, John. You're getting you're getting into a situation. Let me ask you this: How many times have you talked to someone and they said, "I became a believer because somebody argued with me on Facebook, and they were so astute and so wise and knowledgeable that I realized I needed Jesus Christ." Huh? Not many, right? Maybe you did. Maybe you have. I, I don't want to be. You know, too judge, judgy on that. So he says, be obedient to the rulers and authorities. Now, now, hang on a second. Does that mean that we have to shut up and be good? We should be good, let me say. It doesn't mean we have to shut up, though. We should be active. We should vote. We should be a part of the communities that we're in. But let me remind you, the battle's not going to be won in Tallahassee or in Washington or in uh, uh, Manatee County, or in Sarasota County, or in Miami. The battle's not going to be won in a boardroom or a courtroom. The battle has to be won in the hearts and lives of individuals. See, how do you know that? For 10 years, I have watched and been a part of churches, some of them more political than they should have been, try to change lives through jurisdiction or through, through, um, through laws and through, through practices. I've been in a church where... Um, there were government officials, uh, not, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about uh, Vanessa. Vanessa's like, John, you better just watch it. <laughs> Vanessa is a lovely follower of Christ. I'm not talking about her. And she understands that if, if Manatee County is going to be changed, it's not going to be because of laws. It'll be because of the hearts of people. She knows that. I've talked to her about that. I know that she knows that. But I have been in churches where there were government officials that thought if they made enough laws and made enough rules and made it mandatory to be a Christian, that the world would change. Let me tell you what that looks like. The Crusades. That looks like the Crusades. That looks like mandatory following. And what you end up with is nobody believes in God because everybody has to. That's what that looks like. That's not what we want. We want heart change in lives. So here's what I, here's what I want you to understand. Being a good citizen, being a genuinely good person, we're called to do that. We're called to do that. The second thing he says here, he says, he goes on further, he says, being obedient. This goes right in line with that. You know, sometimes I see people, uh, you know, I, it actually breaks my heart when I see churches protesting things that are absolutely legal and absolutely okay, and the church is breaking the law in the way that they're protesting and the things that they're saying and the way that they're acting. We do not have to be the troublemaker. You say, well, what do you mean? Are you, you, John, you're just, you're just kind of 
telling me we shouldn't say anything. No, I'm not saying you shouldn't say anything. In fact, I'll go further and show you exactly what Paul says here. He goes on further. He says, be obedient. He says, be ready for every good deed. Now, here's, here's what I want to get into. Here's what I want to get into. If you see somebody that's living a lifestyle outside of Christ and, and is contrary to Christ and doesn't love God, I'm going to challenge you. Don't go yell at them that they need Jesus. Figure out how can you serve them. How can I help you? How can I do a good deed in your life? How can I be a part of your life and help you see that I love you because Christ loves you? The same way that Christ loves you. I want you to see this parallel. Not because you deserve it, but because Christ loves me, I'm going to love you. Let me tell you something. God did not say, love the people who deserve it. Because guess how many there are? None. There are none that deserve it. We were called to love the people that are our neighbors, that we come in contact with, to go, do good deeds to them. He goes on further. He says, being ready for every good deed, verse uh, number D, he says this, not maligning anyone. So, so really, I really probably should have used the Facebook point on this one. You just have to, I, I got ahead of myself. Even if somebody is saying something that's against Christ, I have found more times than not, it's because they're thinking about Christ, right? So, so let that sink in. If somebody spends all their time refuting Christ and bad-mouthing Christ and bad-mouthing the church, whoops, do you know what that's called in Christian life? Conviction. Have you ever thought about that? The people in your life that are so against Christ it's because they know they need him. And is yelling to them? Is yelling at them? Is beating them with the Bible? Is that going to do it? Or do we need to be loving them? Listen, folks, I'm not telling you, and you'll never hear this church say that we are just going to be okay and affirm sin. Sin is wickedness, and it sends men and women to hell. But Christ is the answer. I don't have to convince them of the wickedness of their sin. In fact, even the most wicked sinner knows in their heart that they need something. They know they're not right. They'll say they're messed up. What we've got to do is love them and show them the cross. We've got to show them Christ. He goes on further. He says, be peaceable. Be gentle. Show every consideration for all men. Now, I'm, I'm really not. I'm not trying to be... Facetious. I'm not trying to call anybody out. If you've posted something on Facebook, I promise you I have not had time to go and see it. So I'm not talking to you. Don't take it personally. But here is what I'm saying. And this is coming from a place of personal experience. I can remember a time where I thought as a pastor, actually at the time a youth pastor, I thought it was my job to police Facebook. And every piece of bad doctrine, every piece of wrong belief, every piece of, of wickedness, I had to go on and call it out. Let me tell you what that led to. A month of very stressful conversations. That's what that led to. None of those kids changed. None of those kids, um, this, this flower wants me. None of those kids changed. None of those things brought any change in lives of students. But you know what did? Jesus Christ. It's all that I've ever seen change anybody. He goes on finally here, he says this. Remembering this, that we were all once foolish ourselves. Let me tell you something. It can be really difficult to love those that are unlovely. It can be really difficult to love those that hate the Lord. It can be really difficult to love those that try to attack you for your faith. But this is why Paul reminds us. Remember, that was you. 
That was you. You were the one that was difficult and unlovable and that was wicked and that was sinful. You were that one. So now that you're not, love somebody. Even when they don't deserve it. Even, then, even when you don't want to. Let me tell you, that could be a whole other sermon. Loving people when you don't want to. But we're called to do it. And here's why he says so. The last point is this. It says, because these things are good and profitable for men. They're good and they're profitable for men. You say, well, he's saying it's good for you, like it's going to benefit you. It's not what he's saying. What he's saying is when you are peaceable, when you're gentle, when you're loving, when you say things that are under control and in a loving way, when you control yourself because the love of Christ constrains you, when that's how you act, those around you can't help but notice. It's the truth. When you love Christ in a way that it changes your behavior and your attitude, everybody around you is going to see there's something different about that guy. There's something different about that girl. You know what door that opens? Well, the only thing different about me is Jesus Christ. If you look at my life and you say, I could never be a pastor, or I could never serve the Lord, or, you know, Pastor John's just so good. Let me tell you something. Pastor John is not just so good. He's really not. Christ changed me. He made me new. And because of that, that's any value that I have. Last thing here, let's give the answer to our question. So our question at the start was this. Well, there's the answer. Where's the question? Here, one more time. There we go. <laughs> Is there anything about me, my past, or my actions that makes salvation and the joy of salvation impossible? Here's the answer. No, through the sacrifice and blood of Christ, you have been saved, changed, claimed, and enlisted by God. You are totally new and the old you is gone. Here's the invitation today. As the musicians come, maybe you're here today and you say, all oh, that seems so crazy to me. I don't feel like there's hope in my life. I don't feel like there's joy in my life. I don't feel like I know Christ. Well, I'm gonna invite you today to begin a relationship with Christ. And I wanna tell you, I think sometimes we're too simplistic about it. When you begin a relationship with Christ, it means that I am committing to follow you, Jesus, because I know you are the one that is worth following. The start of that relationship looks like this. It's as simple as A, B, C. Number one is to admit that you're a sinner. Admit that you are terrible, just like we just examined. That our attitudes are wrong, our behaviors are wrong, our deeds are wrong, we are hopeless. It's easy to admit that because we all see it and feel it within ourselves. The next thing it says is this, B, believe that Jesus came and died on the cross for your sins. He came not because it was, it was the easy thing to do. He came not because you deserved it. He came because he loved you and he wanted you to be redeemed. And C, confess that Jesus is the only way to salvation. You can't be good enough. It can't be Jesus plus something else. It can't be I'm trying my best. Listen, if you're leaning on anything else besides Jesus for salvation, you're going to fall. It's not the way. Salvation is through Christ alone. Maybe you're in the second group and you say, I know I'm a believer. I know I'm following Christ. But as you read these things and as you talk about these things as a, as a Christian, I'm supposed to be doing, it doesn't look like me. Let me tell you something. I feel that conviction too. I feel that conviction too. Because as we look at what we're called to be as believers, we're going to fall woefully short. Let me tell you something, the grace of God and the love of Jesus has covered that sin as well. But let that be an encouragement to you. 
If that's you this morning, that you feel like I am not what that verse, what that passage is calling me to be. I'm not peaceable. I'm not kind. I'm not gentle. I'm not drawing people to Christ. If that's you, it's not the end of the line. Grow in your relationship with Christ. 